That was pretty good. You should do that later. Come back out and sing, lead us. Yeah, a little bit. All right. Well, welcome to Crossroads today. Uh, man, we are glad that you are here. If you're brand new with us and we haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Matt Manning, and I am the senior pastor of this church. And maybe uh, you might be a little bit confused because if you were here pre-service, you saw on the screen me in a blue... Uh, Blue Devil uh, outfit, and that is fake news, all right? That is, I am a Kentucky fan, and uh, last week Kentucky and Duke played each other, and I trash-talked a lot, and apparently this is my payment for sin, is to, uh, is to be paraded in that ugly, ugly outfit. And so I just want to make sure that we're clear uh, on that. But if you are new, man, we are so uh, thankful that you are here today. I want to welcome those of you joining us online, wherever you might be, Facebook, YouTube, Crossroads Live. We are thankful uh, that you're joining us. Today, uh, we are in the final season of our uh, series through Luke. If you are new to Crossroads Church, we have, over the course of the last couple of years, actually been walking through the series of Luke a little bit like a TV show, kind of like in seasons, and we are in the last season of this gospel. The gospel is pretty long, so we wanted to break it up, but we did want to get through all of it. And so in this last season, we have been walking with Jesus as he's making the march to the cross. This is the final week of Jesus's life, and now today we have made it to the cross, which is a significant event in all of human history. In fact, last week, uh, just this last week, somebody in this church came up to me and they said, hey, um, in our church, do we, do we believe in the cross? And I said, yes, absolutely we do. Absolutely we do. And so today we're going to be able to talk a little bit about the cross and what it looks like. Now, as we look at the cross today, uh, many of us are familiar with the story of the cross. And as we look at the cross, as we discuss the cross, I want us to ponder this question. And the question that we're going to look at is this, is why in the world would anyone look at Jesus dying on the cross and say, that's the life that I want to live. That's the faith for me. That's the guy that I want to follow. I mean, if you know the story of Jesus, then you know that Jesus dies at a young age, just 33 years old. He dies a criminal's death, the most heinous death, that on the cross. Everybody in his life, except for his mama, abandons him. Now, meanwhile, that we can look at every other religious faith, all other major prophets and founders and figureheads. And when we do, we find out that not only did they live to a ripe old age, but they were rather successful in their life. We can look at people like Buddha who lived into his 80s and who most would say found enlightenment. We can look at Muhammad, the founder of, of the Islam faith, and he lived into his 60s and during his lifetime he united all of Arabia around one faith. We can look at Moses who lived to 120 years old and led the Hebrew people out, into, out of Egypt and into the promised land. That in light of all of the other major world religions, whether that's Buddhism or Islam or Judaism, why in the world? Would anyone look at Jesus, who died a criminal's death on the cross, and say, that's the life that I want to live. That's the faith that I want to follow. Now, maybe some of you have that answer, but today we're going to look and try to answer that question. And so if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to be today. In Luke chapter 23, we're in the final two chapters of, gospel, of the uh, gospel of Luke. 
And as we follow Jesus, as we saw last week, Jesus has gone through a trial. He's been sentenced to death by crucifixion by the Roman emperor or Roman uh, governor, Pilate. And from that moment, he's taken from the courthouse. And as was custom, he was taken to a place where he got his cross beam, which he would carry along this path known as the Via Della Rosa, the suffering way that anybody who was being crucified, Jesus and anyone else, what they would do is they would carry their crossbeam and they would be paraded through the city outside the northern gates to a, to a place called Golgotha or the place of the skull where crucifixions would happen in the city. And that's where we pick up the story today for Jesus, chapter 23, starting in verse 26. And as they led him away, Luke writes, that's as Jesus is led away from the courthouse, they seized Simeon of Cyrene. Now, here's what's going on. Remember, if you were here last week, that Jesus has been beaten, He's lost a lot of blood. He hasn't slept in probably close to 48 hours. And now he's carrying this large cross beam that he's going to be hung on in just a few minutes. And he just collapses under the weight of that beam. He just cannot carry it anymore. And so the Roman soldiers who are leading him pull just some Joe Smo, Simon, out of the crowd and say, you carry Jesus's beam. And so Simon was coming in from the country and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Two others, who were also criminals, were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they, were, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, not the criminals, the people doing this to Jesus, all right? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up to him and offering him sour wine and saying, if you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over his cross, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging railed against him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be joined with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. Now when the centurion had seen what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all of his acquaintances and the women who, who were followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Would you bow with me as we pray, Father? Lord, we know that we come into here, into your presence. And Lord, as we look at this passage so familiar to so many of us, God, I pray that as we look at the cross today, Lord, that we would see the significance that it plays in our lives. 
Lord, that it would not be lost. The importance of these events would not be lost on us, Lord, as believers or as those who've maybe just walked in here for the first time today. Lord, that we would see Jesus, we would see your love for us through this story. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Now, when we read the story, we don't think about this often, but these moments on the cross for Jesus are his most significant and greatest temptations that he faces in his life. If you remember, Jesus' ministry begins all the way in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, we're told by Luke that Jesus goes into the wilderness, this, this desert barren land in Israel, and he goes there for some specific reasons, to pray, to fast, and to be tempted by Satan, the great enemy. And there Satan meets Jesus in the wilderness, and for 40 days Jesus hears the taunts, and for 40 days Jesus hears the temptations, and for 40 days Jesus takes on the ruthlessness that Satan brings his way, and he does not succumb to the temptation. He does not fail in the temptation. And as Luke is writing this story for us, he, he ends the story in this uneasy, with this uneasy tone when he looks at us, the readers, and he says this, when the devil had finished all this tempting in the wilderness, he left Jesus until an opportune time. He left Jesus until there was a more opportune time. That these words written to us by Luke in chapter 4 foreshadow a coming duel in the desert, a sequel. The next time that Jesus' soul is up for grab, as Luke says, it would have to be a more opportune time. And the word that he chooses to use for opportune here is a farming word. It's a farming word that means that the fruit on the branches are so ripe that the branch is actually bending and about to break because of how heavy they are. That this is a ripening time, that this is a picking time, this is a harvest time. And when Satan comes to tempt Jesus, the very first time in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is in the wilderness, everything is before Jesus, right? All the hope is before Jesus, that he has his whole ministry in front of him. And now as Jesus finds himself hanging on the cross, the situation is a lot different, isn't it? His ministry is dead, and so almost is he. His followers have completely deserted him that he's suffering from a lack of sleep, a lack of blood, is more alone than he's, than he's ever been, no more that he's ever, has he ever been any more weak, no more has he ever been more vulnerable, more ripe for the picking. And Satan knows that as Jesus hangs on the cross that this is his opportune time. The setting of this final temptation is this dusty hill right outside of Jerusalem's northern walls that was called Golgotha. And the reason that it was called Golgotha is because of the caverns and the, the caves in this made it look like the face of a skull. Here is where people were led to be crucified, this, this ominous place just outside of Jerusalem. And as Jesus hangs in agony on that cross with the spikes driven into his hands and into his feet, Satan is more cunning this time around. The first time in the wilderness, in the desert, Satan comes to him wide open. He comes to him speaking to him directly, trying to tempt him time after time after time, but this time it'll be more subtle. This time Satan will come to Jesus and he'll voice the temptation through those who are attending the crucifixion. The first temptation comes through the religious leaders. Feeling the nearness of their victory, they coil like vipers ready to strike. They look at Jesus as he hangs on the cross, yelling at him and for all of the crowd to hear. Can't you save yourself? You've saved others. 
Let him save himself if he really is the son of God, the chosen one. Come on, Jesus, just come off the cross if you're really the Messiah. And as those religious leaders yell at Jesus, certainly Jesus could do that. He could save himself, showing these indignant leaders that he was truly the Messiah. And all the stories that would be told, wouldn't they? The leaders of, of Judaism, if they saw that, surely they would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, if only Jesus would save himself. But their shouts are met with silence from Jesus. Sometime later, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the Roman soldiers who are tasked with overseeing the crucifixion of these three men join into the party. They taunt and jeer their prisoners as they, as they hoist up sour wine and force it down their throats. They take bets that they can get Jesus to curse the God he loves or at least his mama for putting him on this earth. As they force the wine down Jesus' mouth, he says nothing. Eventually, they ratchet up the taunts and the jeers, and like serpents, they hiss, if you truly are the king, like over your cross reads, then save yourself. Jesus looks upon these men, the stories that will be told if if he did indeed just save himself, come down from the cross, that Caesar would no longer be king, Jesus would rule. The people in this time, their opportunity would be endless if Jesus would only save himself. But he offers no defense, no resistance. He says nothing. He just sits in silence. Finally, as Jesus is struggling to breathe and to take breath, he, he looks to his right and he, he sees another criminal hanging on the cross. And as their eyes lock, the criminal looks at him like a snake and says to him, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the one that they call the Christ? Save us and save yourself. Come on, Jesus, you can end the pain. You can end the agony. You can stop the suffering. You can allow us to have breath if you would just save yourself and us. But Jesus knows on this day something that the men hanging next to him does not know. And that is that he can choose one or the other. He can save himself or he can save us, but he cannot do both. He cannot do both. And it's right there as this third temptation comes that we see the importance of the cross. That in spite of the pain that Jesus found himself in, in spite of how tired he was, in spite of how weak he was, how alone he felt, that he had enough strength in that moment to fight back the temptation of Satan and to choose not to save himself, but to choose to save you. And that meaning of that decision resonates in every single one of our lives. That the cross sets the stage for our life and our freedom. Let me explain that to you. See, when it comes to the death of Jesus, that Jesus' death was for his enemies. That Jesus' death was for his enemies. That on the cross, Jesus showed us that God's love is different than human love. That God loves us when we were utterly unlovable. That when Jesus died, and we don't like to think about this, we, we don't like to think about us, ourselves in this way, but, but when Jesus died, he died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. He died for those of us who, who, don't take his, who don't take him seriously. He died for his 
enemies. The Apostle Paul, years later, writing to the church in Romans, speaks to how unnatural this is for us, to to die for enemies, and and how none of us would ever think to, to do such a thing. He writes it in Romans chapter five this way. He says this, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And that's basically true, right? That most of us would say, hey, look, if there was a righteous person out there, perhaps a good person, maybe, maybe I would consider dying for that person. But, huge but, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, very simply, sin is what dishonors God. That's what sin is. It's, it's whatever dishonors God. It's an effort to rob God of his glory by treating this great God as somehow inferior in value to what we prefer in our sinful desires. That at its simplest, that's what sin is. And here's the problem, that each and every one of us as humans have gone on record in devaluing God's glory. To give you an example of this, just to help you understand, let's just take for an example the American flag. Now, the American flag, regardless of what your political views are of this nation, the American flag represents the glory of this nation. That's what it represents. Now, imagine for a moment that I took that flag and I pulled it off its pole, I threw it on the ground, and then I stomped on the glory of this country. What we call that is treason. And treason in every country in the world, if you stomp on the glory of that country, it's called treason. And treason in every part of the world is a capital crime. That is, is punishable by death. Everywhere in the world, punishable by death. So truly, trampling the glory of the most glorious being in all of the universe is the most serious crime in the universe. And the penalty of that crime, of treason, is death. And the problem for you and for me is that every single one of us, at some time or another, have gone on record devaluing the glory of God. And so the question that we wrestle with, or that we should wrestle with, is not why do any of us live, or why any of us die. We all know why we die. We die because we're sinners. We die because we have declared ourselves enemies towards God. That's why we die. The question that we should ask is why do any of us live? Why do any of us live? And the answer to that is because the death of Jesus was on our behalf, that the death of Jesus is on our behalf. That one of the ways that we describe the cross and what happened on the cross when Jesus was hung on it is that we say that Jesus is our substitutionary atonement. He's our substitutionary atonement. That is, he died in our place. That Jesus had no sin of his own. It was not his own penalty that he bore on that day, but he was a substitute for others, for those who would, who would find their way and be joined to him in faith. I mean, come on. If it's true that the most serious crime in the universe is that God's creatures have gone on record as devaluing the glory of God, and that is punishable, therefore, by death, then how do we find ourselves out of this situation? How do we remedy the situation that we find ourselves in? How do we find justice in this this situation? Well, here's the answer. The injury done to the glory of God has to be repaired. That's what justice is, right? That justice or, or righteousness is the glory of God is to be restored to its rightful place. So this justice can only happen 
by stripping glory away from those who have committed this crime in the same measure that they've stripped it from God. Let me say it this way. That the only way that this can be justified is by, by my glory being stripped away from me at the same measure that I've stripped it away from God. Now here's the issue. That God is an infinite being with infinite glory and I am finite. This is the meaning of hell. That in my finiteness, I do not have enough glory to be stripped away to pay for the devaluing of God's glory. So it will take an infinite amount of time to balance the enormity of our crime. That's why the punishment is therefore eternal. It's eternal. It's why hell exists. And so the major tension throughout the New Testament is can Jesus, can Jesus repair the glory of God for the people of God? Can Jesus repair the glory of God for the people of God? And when we read the Bible, the answer is an astounding yes. This is the ultimate reason for the death of Jesus. It's the reason that he couldn't succumb in the desert for 40 days to Satan's temptations and just bow down to get everything that Satan was offering. It's why he couldn't just save himself as he hung on the cross. That this is the reason, this is the whole purpose. The whole reason that Jesus came was to repair the injury that had been done to God by us sucking his glory. That he laid aside, Jesus did, he laid aside his glory. He emptied himself, the scripture says. He endured suffering, not in a random way, but precisely in a personal way to restore the glory of the Father. That Jesus' entire life, his whole life, was lived as a reversal, as a reversal of our attack on the glory of God. And since Jesus is infinitely valuable, his loss of glory and the humiliation and the death as he hung on the cross can cover all of our God-defaming sins. Complete justice was done to Jesus on the cross so that the ungodly like you and me could live. He died the death that we ultimately deserved. He bore the punishment that was ours to carry. And for everyone who believes in him, that Jesus took the wrath of God on their behalf. Peter, who would write years later to the churches around the world. And remember, Peter was a man who literally went on record devaluing God's glory. That's what we saw last week. He writes these words, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you and me, we have been healed. And so, in the death of Jesus, the reason that this is so important is because he actually defines what love is for us. That oftentimes when we, when we walk in this world and we think about the cross of Jesus, particularly if you're a Christian, you look at it and you say, this is the greatest act of love that's ever been shown in the world. And it certainly is that, but it's not only that. Because what Jesus did on the cross was not only a great act of love, but he actually modeled what love looks like for us. He actually showed us in this atonement what love looks like. So much so that, that John, his best friend, would write these words. By this, by this, 
by the crucifixion, by the cross, by Jesus' death, we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we, this is how we're to model it out in the world. Now we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters, for the people in this world. See, Jesus' death not only forgives us of our sins, but he actually shows us a model for how we're actually to live this life, which ultimately leads us to the death of Jesus reconciling us to God. That the death of Jesus reconciles us to God. That all of these benefits of Jesus' death, dying for enemies, substitutionary atonement, showing and modeling for us what love is all about, all of this has one great purpose, and that is to reconcile us to God. That Jesus' death enables us to have a joy-filled relationship with the creator of the universe, which is the best news in the world. That our alienation, listen, our alienation as enemies is over. It has ended through Jesus' substitutionary atonement. Because of his love for us, we are reconciled to the judge of the creation, to the judge of the universe, which means this, that God is no longer against you. God is for you. That God is no longer against us because we are enemies positioning ourselves against him, that now he's for us. It's why people all over the world look at Jesus dying on the cross and say, that's the life that I want to live. That's the life for me. That's the faith. That's the guy that I want to follow. So listen, on the cross, Jesus could have either saved himself or he could have saved us, but he could not do both, which means in part that you either have someone acting on your behalf, absorbing the severe consequences of your reckless decisions against God, or you, or you don't. You either have someone acting on your behalf as your substitutes, or you don't, and you have to take care of it all by yourself. So let's just stop believing that God is somehow obligated to do this for us. Let's just stop believing right today that it's God's job to forgive us as if there's some reason in the universe that he should. That he has some, some duty to show us any measure of grace and mercy, particularly in, in light of our refusal to, to take him seriously, even though you've gone on record as an enemy of his. I mean, for many of us, we've, we've heard the phrase that God is not mocked. Well, every time, every time you roll your eyes at God and his claim on your life, you're, you're mocking God. Every time your irresponsible actions cause significant harm to someone else or any harm to someone else, you're mocking God. Every single time your words cut deeply into the soul of another, you're mocking God. And every single time you mock God, every single time you devalue his glory, every time you devalue the glory of his creation, the, the glory of his people, he takes that seriously. And he's not just going to let it go. On the other hand, if you own up to the damage that your words and your actions have caused in other people's lives, if you own up to the, to the damage that your words and actions have caused to God, and ask Jesus to absorb the severe consequences of those bad decisions, 
He will save you. Which means he forgives your sins. Even though he has no obligation to do so, that's what love's all about. That's what makes the cross one of the most significant events in all of history because on the cross, Jesus had the opportunity to save himself. And yet he chose you and he chose me. If you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm just gonna invite you to do that in a conversation that we call prayer. Would you bow your heads with me, Father? Lord, as we look at your word today, Lord, the weight of the sin of our lives is upon us. Lord, we see the meaning and the significance of the cross and what our treasonous acts have cost you in your glory. The way that every single one of us has gone on record devaluing who you are and the glory that you have and have committed treason, a crime punishable by death. And Lord, every single one of us are deserving of death. And so, Father, I pray for those today in the room who hear my voice online, who are watching this. God, that if they find themselves in a place having devalued your glory, having sinned against you, having declared themselves enemies, Lord, that today that they would simply fall at the foot of the cross, that they would see you for who you are, love. And that through that love and that grace and that mercy, that you would bestow upon them life because they cry out to you, save me. God, for those of us, Lord, who have maybe walked for you for days, weeks, years, decades, God, so often we lose the practical reality of the cross and what it means every day in our life. Lord, shame on us for treating our sin so haphazardly. Shame on us for, for devaluing your glory and thinking nothing of it. God, your word tells us that if we come to you seeking forgiveness, that you are righteous and true to give us forgiveness. And so, Lord, today, we repent. We repent as we look at the cross, remembering your sacrifice. Lord, save us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Every week when we come to communion, this is ultimately what we're celebrating. That on the cross, as Satan's temptations came to Jesus, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. He did not do so. Instead, he allowed his body to be broken in order to save you. And so today we remember as we take the body and remember what was accomplished on the cross for us. In the same way, Jesus' blood was poured out and we're told that the blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could know what love truly is. And so as we drink today, drink of the love of your Savior. As we contemplate the significance of the cross on our lives, 
we're gonna sing. We're gonna sing our praises to God for what he accomplished. We're gonna sing that he chose to save us over himself. We're gonna, we're gonna sing that he doesn't hold our sin against us as enemies, but instead loves us as children. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand online. You can take whatever posture you want. If you need prayer at any time over the next 20 minutes, I'd encourage you to get it online. Click the button, make your way in-house over to the left to the prayer banner, and we would love to pray for you. Let's sing together.